Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We're delighted to be back, and we have uh, a guest that I think uh, his appearance is very timely. He's always welcome, but I think this is a particularly timely time, timely time, a, a wonderful time to have Andy Taylor on. Andy, of course, is the uh, not the Andy Taylor of, uh, of uh, Mayberry, but he is the Andy Taylor of North Carolina State, where he is a professor of political science. He's been on our show many, many times. And, as, of course, as soon as you hear your voice, you're going to recognize that he's not from Pequay Verena. Uh, but uh, Andy, uh, uh, of course, studies the North Carolina political scene deeply and uh, has published in many journals uh, uh, what's going on and, of course, is author of, a, of, of, of several books, but one, The Elephant's Edge, The Republicans as a Ruling Party in North Carolina. Andy, welcome to the program again. Thanks for having me, Don. Well, of course, you know, I guess the news this week was the uh, uh, the announcement of the book by Bob Woodward, uh, who uh, interviewed for 18 times Donald Trump in, a, in recorded interviews uh, that uh, I don't think uh, certainly helped Donald Trump's position any uh, because it uh, has on tape now certain admissions that uh, uh, have been alleged but uh, not proven up to this point. Uh, I was amazed that he would allow a taped interview with a writer who has obviously been a critic. What, what, what's your overall view of this whole revelation, Andy? Yeah, you're right in this um, being somewhat surprised that Trump would go ahead with this, Don. The, there, and these are taped uh, um, interviews, um, as far as we can tell, I think mainly conducted over the telephone, but they are taped. Woodward has not written, has written about Trump before um, uh, and the early days of the Trump administration in a rather unflattering way. It does seem odd that Trump would would want to um, subject himself to this again uh, with Bob Woodward, who of course has a, a reputation for decades as being a, a pretty hard-charging, um, resourceful reporter who's able to uncover all sorts of things in government. And um, th- it comes out that uh, Trump um, uh, sort of behind the scenes was uh, con- deeply concerned about the coronavirus and its what its effects would be on the American people and the American economy. Uh, but uh, in front of cameras, when he was speaking to the American people, he was saying something different. And uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't think this is going to help Trump uh, during the campaign. In fact, it will probably be something that would hurt him greatly, especially since I think there is a real focus now and, and the Biden campaign is doing this on the president's performance during during the pandemic. And I think that the, the Democrats are really focusing on this. They realize that this is the kind of issue that will really hurt Trump with those sort of moderate um, uh, Republican voters, suburban voters, uh, people who don't like Trump's style, but certainly um, have been more attracted to his policies. Here we have a, 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 an issue that can really undermine their confidence in his ability to lead the nation. Well, it, it would seem like it would go beyond that issue also to the fact that he just wasn't candid with the American public. I, you know, whether the word lie is a, a, a overstatement or not, I'm not going to get into that. But clearly, 
if the remarks he made to uh, Woodward are correct, I, I'm assuming they are, they're taped, then it would appear that there is a lack of being, of, of trusting the American public. Yeah, I mean, tr Trump's response to that is that, you know, going over the top would have um, created undue and counterproductive panic uh, amongst the American people. Um, but the trouble with that is that, of course, Trump has a uh, has a record of of not holding back, um, of really pushing hard on on matters, and 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 even if we even if they would make us feel a little bit unsafe or unsure of where we're going, he's not holding back on those on other issues. So um, yes, no, I, I you know I think overall this is clearly a negative for him. Um, at a really important time during the campaign when people are starting to really focus on it. It's past Labor Day now, which is a traditional, seen as a traditional beginning. We're moving into debate season and people are, are really having had a tumultuous year uh, where they haven't really focused on the presidential race as much as they would do under ordinary circumstances, have really started to, to lock in on it. It would also seem to me that this is... Uh going to be real fodder for Biden uh, during a uh, uh, debate because no matter what Trump says, he can turn, uh, 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 Biden can turn the tables and say, well, now, wait a minute, that's not what you said earlier. And yeah. it changes the course of the debate. Yes. And those debates are coming up. And in a year when we don't have the sort of usual kinds of campaigning because of the restrictions, uh, in a year when the conventions were uh, all online, um, and people uh, paid much less attention to both of them, both the Democrats and the Republicans' conventions, than they normally do. You would think that the debates would have uh, play a greater role um, and be more important uh, than they normally are. Okay, now the surveys I've seen so far, and you, of course, you keep up with this far more than I do, uh, but the polls I've seen so far indicate that a large percentage of people have already made up their mind one way or the other prior to this conversation with Bob Woodward. Will there be a change in the position of a percentage of people now? Will they actually back off their support of Donald Trump because of this? And if so, what what percentage do you think that might be? Well, I think you're right that the electorate over the past few cycles has been um, more rigid um, and and people a lot of the data show that there are more sort of deeper uh, stronger partisans amongst the electorate than we've we have seen for a long time and it's in, it's it's growing as the parties become more ideologically polarized but if you have uh, an election which promises to be pretty close the, the the relatively few people who are persuadable are very important um, and I think this goes, as we said in, earlier in the conversation, this goes into the Biden campaign narrative about why uh, people who are considering Trump um, should should not. The Biden campaign all the way along has tried to make this a referendum on Trump. They don't really want to make it a, a, a they don't really want, don't want to, people to be talking about Joe Biden very much. They want them to be talking about, about Trump. And of course, um, it, it allows the Biden campaign to, to do that more. I don't know in percentage terms, Don, how many people this would will affect. 
Um, but as I said, in a close race, it doesn't have to be very many, uh, particularly in those critical swing states, to, for it to have a material effect on the outcome of the election. Well, on top of everything else, I mean, every change would be a negative change. There would I, I don't see that he's going to pick up anything because of this. Now, the other, of course, comments that he's made that uh, are being discussed, uh, which, again, uh, attack a number of people who have been supportive of him, and that's his comments about the military. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, he, uh, I don't see that he's winning any support there either. It, it looks no, like no. The interesting thing about the difference between those remarks and, and the confession in the Woodward interview is, of course, that those are uh, hit or are reported by the p people present uh, on an, a number of occasions, but nevertheless, there is no recording so but the real bad thing for trump is even if you do sort of doubt to a certain extent perhaps the motives of people who reported those the motives of the atlantic magazine um that published them you still the the problem for trump is one i thought that was captured quite nicely by john bolton when he when he talked about it and that is you can imagine him saying those things uh, because they are sort of consistent with a lot of the kind of frank, open, and sometimes what we might consider reckless things that Trump says. And so it doesn't it doesn't matter that there is no recording like there is with the Woodward remarks. People will project in their mind, yeah, I, I can I can see Trump saying that. And again, as you noted, Don, it's extremely negative for him. What uh, let's put the other the other shoe on. What is Trump saying now that is maybe different that would convince a on the fence voter to vote for him? I don't hear anything where he is gaining uh, with anyone. What do you hear? No, I think I mean I think the strategy is to push it back on Biden. Um, I told I said that the Biden campaign wants to make it a referendum on Trump. I think the Trump campaign's real hope now is to tell voters that you know if if joe biden's in office uh not that he's a bad man i don't i think you know you that's that's going to be a, 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 a an uh, an argument that's not going to work now people kind of like joe uh but that he is weak and if you he is effectively a trojan horse for the radical left for um some of the voices that you've heard that have been increasingly prominent in the democratic party uh, people like Bernie Sanders, uh, a number of the members of, particularly in the House, younger freshman members, members, for example, of, of what's now the, called the Squad. Um, uh, he uh, get Democratic mayors and governors who seem to be unable to um, prevent a lot of the unrest that's going on around the country. Uh, that's his. That's his argument now, and 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 I think it's probably the best one he can make. Um, especially given that uh, Biden's trying to make it a referendum on him. And at the moment, given s some of the things that are going on, including some of the things that you brought up in the conversation, Trump probably loses a referendum on Trump. So I think that's their strategy going into the home straight here. Our guest is Andy Taylor. He's uh, a professor of political science at North Carolina State very frequent guest on our program and a keen observer of North Carolina politics. Later on in the program, we're going to talk about the North Carolina governor's race, the Tom Tillis seat, uh, the General Assembly, and some other issues that will come up 
in the election that is coming up in November. We'll do that right after these messages. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an academic thing. I came out in the 11th grade. Nobody was embracing you. The kids were cruel. It was very difficult to be gay. Even though all these years have passed, I still had that longing to have my diploma. The hard part was determining that I was gonna do it, but I definitely didn't do it alone. At age 30, with the help of her mentor, Carissa finished her high school diploma. I have a mentor, Maria. She convinced me to continue my education and to finish what I started to get my diploma. Just never judges. She's a true role model. If you're even considering getting your high school diploma, go get it. You can do it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. And you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with Andy Taylor, our frequent uh, guest who uh, com comments on all things revolving politics in the state of North Carolina. Andy, of course, is uh, a frequently quoted person on WUNC, on WRL television. Uh, and in, in, uh, he, of course, uh, teaches at North Carolina State. Uh, while we're talking about North Carolina State, how interested are today's students in this election compared to other years that you've seen? Well, it's, it's harder to tell. Um, everybody knows what the situation is like on UNC campuses this fall, um, I've got my own views on what's happened. Um, um, I'm very, I will say I am extremely disappointed that we can't continue to have students around. Um, uh, I'm teaching um, using mediums like Zoom uh, and uh, I obviously where I'm trying to do the best I can. I'm having uh, some interactions with students, uh, not as much as I would normally have, but they do seem interested. I mean, I think that the pandemic has made us focus a lot more on our own personal lives um, and our own personal sort of day-to-day -day existence than perhaps we would like to. And we would like to be more aware of what's going on in the broader world and, and what's going on in this campaign. I think the same is true for the students. If they were here and we had no pandemic, my sense is that it would be extremely electric and there'll be a lot of, on both sides, there'll be a lot of um, interesting conversation about the campaigns um, in this election. But it's a bit more subdued and it's very quiet at the moment um, uh, because of the because of these extraordinary circumstances. Let's turn to the North Carolina uh, uh, seats uh, and uh, races that are going to be on the ballot. And it's extensive because this is one of the years where we have both a Senate seat up, as well as, of course, all the congressional seats and the governor's race and the lieutenant governor's race and the entire council state as well. Let's take a look at the governor's race first. Uh, all the polls I've seen so far have a rather commanding lead for uh, incumbent Governor Cooper, uh, an incumbent governor of North Carolina, 
usually has had some of an advantage. Uh, what do you see going on in that race? Yeah, so um, incumbent governors do seem to have an advantage, although, of course, the last two didn't um, in Pat McCrory and um, Bev Perdue. Um, so, you know, there is precedent uh, in, in the current era of two-term or, or, or uh, allowing governors to run for two terms. Obviously, in North Carolina, we've, we've only really been allowing them to do that since the 1970s, to run for re-election. Uh, the polls are suggesting that Cooper has a lead, um, which is larger than any lead given to the presidential candidates in the state and even to the to either of the U.S. Senate candidates in the state. So of the, the three big races in North Carolina this fall, it does seem to be the one that's least competitive. Cooper has anywhere around between about five, six, seven, maybe up to nine or 10 points leads in the polls, depends on the poll. He's at about 50 and then Forrest goes, uh, of course his opponent's Lieutenant uh, Governor Dan Forrest, goes between sort of 40 and 43, 44. Um, the one thing that I would be worried about if I was in the Cooper camp is uh, his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. There are, I think, a lot of people who are starting to wonder where we're going. What is the plan? Um, he's said all the way along that any plan for reopening is driven by science and data. Um, although it's not always clear, I think, to people what science and what data are, are guiding the decisions. Um, he's getting a reputation, I think, for being... Uh, 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 it was a positive one initially for being cautious and, and even and sort of um, level-headed, but now it's starting to get to be sort of overly cautious and too timid in some circles. Um, and uh, you know, there are people are itching to get back, uh, particularly in schools. I think we particularly see that um, in the lower grades, where um, there's a lot of data that suggests that it will be okay. The Europeans who uh, uh, you know are doing it, others are doing it. I think that is the danger. But unfortunately for Forrest, you know, and this is, this, you want to do this when you're a challenger. You want to do this when you're an underdog. You want to get out there and you want to be meeting people and talking to crowds and, and really showing some energy um, and breaking into the new, through the, the, the public's consciousness into the news cycle. He just can't do that because of the, of the um, unique circumstances we find ourselves in. And, and so it's, it's, it's making it very hard for him uh, to be able to sort of accelerate and catch up some of this ground that he needs to, he, he needs to gain. Well, we're so occupied with the pandemic uh, that, uh, pandemic that uh, we uh, are finding it difficult to focus on all the other issues. And of course, one of the huge issues uh, that are going to be facing the General Assembly and the state of North Carolina is going to be the budget shortfall because clearly... Uh, the tax base or the tax collections are going to be down from sales tax and probably income tax as well. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but uh, will those issues actually have a chance to surface at all since everyone is so occupied? Well, I think, I think they will. I mean, I think people are, are yeah. focused on, yeah, I think people are focused on the economic effects. Um, and, and obviously the governor, governors, as opposed to the president, Governors have um, police powers in their states, which means that the you know 
things like lockdowns and uh, and um, regulations re regarding social gatherings and the wearing of masks these are all coming from governors and these are very important profound decisions that have effects on people's health have effects on people's economic welfare that have tremendous effects on people's personal liberty um and these are profound issues um and then of course as you noted you we're going to have the fiscal effects um which are going to be considerable even to a state like north carolina which is generally thought to be in fairly strong uh, health um and the governor is basically uh, proposed another budget at a, a very odd time in the budget cycle in 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 august you know we're in um a new budget year we haven't got a budget technically although that we have laws a law that now allows us to work on previous um uh, appropriations amounts uh, an automatic continuing resolution so we're at no immediate prospect of closing down but he he obviously is realizing this is, these are going to be problematic times um it's right in the middle of an elect a campaign um, and so, yeah, I mean, these are really important issues um, that uh, should should be extremely um, uh, uh, drive public uh, the public's um, voting choices. Uh, but as you noted, they're, they're sort of very um, blurred and, and obfuscated by our, our focus on our own personal well-being and, and, and how this epidemic is is affecting ourselves, affecting us and our families. We also have a race that probably is, is bigger nationally than it is locally, uh, and it is big locally, and that's the Tillis seat of the United States Senate race between Cal Cunningham and uh, uh, the present incumbent Senator Tillis. Um, this race is uh, by all, uh, as I said, could decide who controls the United States Senate. Yeah. Yeah, and it's going to be the most expensive Senate seat race in, uh, in the country this fall. Uh, the Republicans have 53 uh, seats in the Senate. The Democrats would have to pick up a net gain of three um, if Biden wins the presidency and they've got Kamala Harris breaking a tie in the Senate. If Trump is re-elected, they'll have to gain four to, uh, to take control of the body. Um, it, there's one, the Alabama seat looks like one that the Democrats are going to lose. So that that adds one to the target total that they need to take control. Um, and there are a number of uh, races that they've got their eye on um, in places like uh, Maine, uh, Colorado, Iowa, uh, Montana. But this one in North Carolina is clearly very important to them. And the polls are suggesting it's going to be extremely close uh, between uh, Tom Tillis and Cal Cunningham. Uh, so expect a, a trim, as much as you can under these circumstances, expect a significant amount of national attention uh, on the race. What do you think the main issue that they will appeal to North Carolina voters uh, in making their decisions on whether they go with Tillis or Cunningham? Well, you know, obviously the presidential race is going to have an effect. Um, Cunningham has tried to attach Tillis to sort of Trump's worst uh, qualities. Um, he's tried to uh, present himself as an outsider, as a newcomer, as a fresh face, who is, uh, whereas uh, Tillis is sort of 
wrapped up in what to use what kind of phrase that Trump would say the deep state or the swamp in in Washington um, uh, that that he's corrupt um, that he um, has been influenced by uh, interests particularly corporations and interests outside that have come from outside of North Carolina rather than North Carolina itself it's a, a really a sort of typical kind of uh, uh, um, challenge a strategy or message there. Um, Cunningham likes to present himself as uh, in terms of leadership uh, as well as change, as a stable hand, as well as, as someone who is, is going to be a fresh face. Um, but, it, it, you know, it, this will be wrapped up in the presidential race. You know, it's not necessarily going to be a, a referendum on Tillis himself or Tillis's personal performance in the Senate. Um, Tillis is for a, a first term senator. Someone's been in the Senate for six years is pretty unknown. If you look at the the surveys on a, a, approval ratings for Tillis, his approval ratings are very low, but largely as a result of people not knowing him rather than having a negative view. Well, it's going to be an interesting race, and as you said, probably going to go right down to the wire. I guess is Andy Taylor, professor of political science at North Carolina State, frequent guest on this program. When we come back, we're going to talk about issues that could yet uh, swing elections, including the COVID-19 vaccine, the economy, uh, the selection of the vice presidential candidate, and other issues. We'll do that when we return right after these messages. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with Andy Taylor, who is a professor of political science at North Carolina State. Uh, we've talked about all sorts of issues. I need to talk a little bit about uh, your personal life. Are you working on a book right now, Andy? Yeah, I am, actually. Um, I'm trying to. Um working on a book about uh, po po politics and economic inequality in the United States um, and uh, sort of looking at uh, taking a kind of contrarian view um, to some of the li literature. Um, so uh, I've been working on that for a little bit of time. 
and do you have a uh, working title yet uh not really um it will be it will be sort of in defense of the american system or something along those lines um it's a it's obviously very fashionable to uh trash our political system these days it comes from everybody and it in, in in many ways the, the argument is kind of a defense for for how how the thing works interesting well we'll look forward to it what, you have a timetable well yeah hopefully i mean i've written i don't want to get into too many details but i've written there's 10 chapters i've written five and i've got two or three more in various pieces and i'm working on getting a publisher but it'll be a, it will be a while well, let's turn our issues, our, our conversation back to the uh, upcoming election. We've got uh, this election, and as you said, uh, Labor Day is sort of the official beginning of the process. We've got debates coming up. How important do you think the debates will be this year uh, as far as the outcome of the election? Well, I sort of talked about this a little bit before, but normally they're not really that important. Um, they they kind of allow people to reinforce decisions that they've made previously. So if you look at a lot of surveys of people who are asked, who do you think won the debate? Um, and they, they pick a candidate and then you find out that that's the person that they are supporting anyway. Um, and they use the debate to reinforce a previously, a previously made decision rather than to go into them open in a, with an open mind and allow them to sway them one way or the, the other. Uh, that doesn't mean they've never had an effect. Um, you know, famously, people talk a lot about the Reagan Carter debate in 1980 as being a real turning point. That campaign uh, that, that uh, the polls suggested was very close um, going into October. And um, obviously, as we know, it, uh, the, it broke decisively in the favor of then Governor Reagan, um, who won uh, by, you know, somewhere around about um, nine, 10 percentage points, uh, which was pretty comfortable victory. Um, everybody talks about Jerry Ford in 1976 when he denied that um, Poland was under Soviet occupation and that was said to have heard him, particularly since 1976 was an extremely close year. Um, but other than that, although, you know, they don't seem to have much of an effect. There's a, a real uh, strong um show uh, from data we can we can see that uh, hillary clinton had very strong showing in all of the debates particularly the first debate in 2016 and didn't help her um obama was said to have bombed and most people agreed the first debate in 2012 didn't help mitt romney but this year we don't have as much uh, as many cues just because we don't have the candidates out there uh, on the stump doing lots of big speeches, visiting, going around big rallies and what have you. And so there will be other information. We talked about the Woodward book. Um, we, there will be other things that come down the pike that will uh, uh, affect the race. But there will be more attention, I think, on these debates uh, than there normally are. Um, the question is, will they deliver? Um, and you do really need a big knockout blow to, to have to move the needle. Um, a sort of rope-a-dope strategy or a, a sort of a, a, a bear hug strategy that some candidates go into into debates isn't going to result in that. So 
yeah, they might potentially they could have more make more of a difference than they normally do. But I'm not. I don't have a great deal of confidence that they will. Well, we all have learned the lesson that uh, uh, who wins the popular vote nationwide is not nearly as important as who wins the electoral vote because that's it's not important at all compared to the electoral vote. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, there are five or six swing states that uh, Trump must take uh, to uh, probably to be reelected. Yeah. Uh, sort of go down those states and where you think they are right now. Well, there's an interesting thing that Trump has done and now perhaps um, Biden, maybe a bit of Obama did this as well, is to change the electoral map a little bit. Um, the same states, uh, swing states, are still the sort of same that, that we had about 10, 15 years ago are still the, the principal candidates today. Um, Florida remains tremendously important. Um, it's very, very close. It has a large number of electoral votes. You know, it's, it's now the third biggest state in the union. I think it's overtaken New York um, to take that position, um, you know, with 29 electoral votes. Um, it's it's going to be it's going to be key. Uh, Ohio has, has always been another large and important swing state or battleground state. And I don't think that's changed much. However, it does illustrate what is going on. Um, and we saw that dramatically in 2016 when Trump won um, Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Um, Pennsylvania for the first time uh, since 1988, a Republican had won it and the other two for the first time since 1984. I think I got that right. I, I sometimes get that mixed up. I think I've attributed those dates to the right states. Um, and this was demonstrative of the fact that Republicans, particularly a Trump Republican, possibly other Republicans, are making headway in what the industrial rust belt uh, with white working class voters that, that are, are, are populist there. And as a result, having success in those kinds of states, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and making Ohio redder than it was before. Uh, on the other hand, Democrats are making inroads in the, in the Sun Belt and particularly the kind of rim south. Florida is still purple. Um, but Virginia, which was a pretty Republican state until recently, has gone kind of through battleground swing status to become fairly blue. The same seems to happen, have happened to Colorado, um, uh, which has done the same. And then you're seeing Democrats looking more competitive in other states. Maybe even, you know, the Texases of the world, but particularly perhaps the Georgia, Georgias of the world, a state like Georgia um, or Georgia. <laughs> um, and, and then uh, even in places like Arizona and, and in the southwest, Nevada, New Mexico. And of course, that leaves also as an obvious candidate, North Carolina, which is becoming, I think, increasing at the presidential level a little bit more purple than it was in the past when it was pretty red. Um, and so you would add North Carolina to those swing states and one, and therefore in the category, since where it is geographically, one of which Trump needs to win, if but, but Biden could win it. And if Biden does win it, that makes him the favorite to win overall. So those top tier states that you mentioned, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, it is where is Trump running in those? 
he's running behind what he did in 16, um, particularly in Michigan um, and to a certain extent in Pennsylvania. He can probably afford to lose two of those if he can hold on to his Sunbelt states, but he can't lose all three. And Wisconsin is looking to be a kind of state where, you know, the, the pivotal state. It sort of, in many ways, kind of was in 2016. In fact, Trump even wants to, thinks that he can expand uh, the red states in that area and, and possibly bring Minnesota into play, um, which, of course, would, would place pressure on Biden. But I do think, you know, in, in those Rust Belt states that you've talked about, that where Bush, uh, excuse me, where Trump really wants to hold the line, um, his weakest uh, defense at the moment is in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Um, uh, but he could probably afford that, but no more, no more beyond that. Um, and so Wisconsin's going to become uh, a, sig a significant battle battleground, particularly if you start to see the Trump campaign uh, possibly conceding in Michigan and Pennsylvania. We're hearing more and more that we may not know on election night who won the election, uh, but we may have a pretty good indication from the Electoral College. So. Let's assume that the day after the election is over, who do you think is going to have more electoral votes than the other one? If you look at it right now. Well, I think we're sort of saying who's going to win. I mean, the, the, what will happen is we might have some close states where because of the large mail-in ballot, um, then um, they're not prepared to call them. And it's possible there'll be enough of those states that neither candidate can get to a majority or 270 in the electoral college. And therefore, you won't be able to call the entire race. Um, you know, Biden's a favorite at the moment, uh, mainly in the national polls. Although if you look at this, the, the swing state polls, I would consider his chances of winning less because, it, it, as you noted, it's not a national popular vote. And there does seem to be some kind of Trump bias in the Electoral College, as we saw in 2016. Um, he, it's his, I think it's Biden's to lose at the moment. He's running a front runner campaign. He's being particularly cautious. Trump is helping him uh, a little bit with some of the things that we've talked about. So I think at this stage, Biden is a favorite. Um, and, and, and the question is, and, and, and I think if you take 2016 as a benchmark, he's running ahead of Clinton, uh, which is, I think, very important to note. Biden is running ahead of where Clinton was uh, in early September of 2016. Our guest is Andy Taylor. We have one final segment coming up here on Carolina Newsmakers as we look at the upcoming election and the election process that's going on right now in the state of North Carolina. And we will begin that right after we take time out for these messages. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. 
Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Is this tree good for climbing? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back with Andy Taylor here on Carolina Newsmakers, and uh, we've talked to, had some very interesting observations from Andy about the upcoming election. Uh, Andy, of course, is a professor of political science at North Carolina State University and has been a frequent guest on this program, and uh, we uh, love to get into a deep dive with his observations. One of the things that is going on right now, uh, and President Trump is making a big to-do about this, and that is the fact that so many people are going to choose to vote by mail, many, many more than we've had before. Uh, President Trump seems to think that this is a, there's a possibility for fraud. I'm not sure that uh, even his own uh, political party agrees with that assessment necessarily, uh, but uh, how do you assess the the uh, huge amount of uh, increase in the uh, absentee ballots and voting by mail in that whole situation? Yeah, well, obviously, this is all driven by people's concerns about being in social settings uh, because of the coronavirus. Um, and there are many people who are concerned about that for whatever reason. Um, and that, that's put a lot more attention on voting by mail uh v- voting rules are the domain of the states and uh you you know we have 50 states uh and the district of columbia um they have there are 51 different sets of rules really um and so it depends upon which state some states in fact historically have had well historically but in re- in the past decade or so have moved to all male elections so uh, Oregon is a good example of that, um, uh, Oregon being the first. Um, all Their elections are all mail-in. Uh, and then you go to other states where uh, you need to have uh, a significant um, excuse to get a mail-in vote because the mail vote is considered purely an absentee ballot. Um, the states like North Carolina... Uh, kind of in the middle. We have um, what we call no excuse absentee voting, which means that, you know, in in the year of the coronavirus, um, you can just request a mail ballot. Um, You don't have to say, oh, I'm going to be on vacation on election day or on business trip or what have you, or I'm having an operation. You know, you don't need to give an excuse. So you can request one and they will send one to you. Um, and in fact, you can even submit them as early as now. We have the, uh, I think, the earliest date at which ab- um, absentee mail ballots can be submitted by voters uh, uh, and it will be accepted by the state. And that was uh, at the end of last week. So you can get one now um, and you can 
you can you can send it in um, as long as you send it in. I think it's by October twenty seventh. Uh, all the data that is being collected, some of it um, by my, many of my colleagues across the state uh, who work um, very hard at this, people like uh, Michael Bitzer um, and Chris Cooper, uh, collecting these data. And all the indications are that this is a record-breaking year, that we may have as many as 600, possibly up to three-quarters of a million voters who will do it by mail, which, by the way, is still a you know, sizable, it's still a minority. Um, most people will vote on election day. Uh, but it will have effects because um, one is this question of fraud that you talked about, um, Don. Uh, a lot of the f arguments about fraud, voter fraud, we've heard in the past decade or so have to do with voter impersonation. Uh, but, and that's why we need voter ID. And so when you have someone go to the polls, you want to make sure that they give you an ID. But it's always seemed to me, and we saw this in the North Carolina 9th Congressional District in 2018, that um, ballot harvesting, that is someone taking someone's ballot or kind of manipulating it in some way, a mail-in ballot, and then sending it in on their behalf or doctoring it, is much more likely to be a problem uh, when it comes to fraud. And um, this is where a lot of this concern about the fraud of, of mail-in voting is, is coming from. Um, of course, people even if they uh, think know that they're the one who've, who who's voted on the piece of paper, they're still concerned, well, will the elections board get it? Or will they be able to count it? Will it get there in time? Will it get lost in the mail? Been a tremendous dispute about the mail service, of course, the USPS so between Democrats and Republicans over the last uh, several weeks. So there is this real, real concern the other thing is, uh, what will happen on election night? If it's really close, there's going to be a lot of absentee ballots to count. And they tend to take a long, lot longer time, which means that, you know, if North Carolina is close, it's possible that Trump will win the state because we think Republicans are more likely to vote on election day in the initial count. But as the absentee ballots come in, maybe it will go to Biden, which will suggest uh, people will worry of about whether that's legitimate or not, or what's going on. So there are all sorts of issues that are brought up by this. And it's going to be a fascinating, it's going to be fascinating to see the effect that mail-in ballots have. Issues that could change uh, people's minds, of course, if they've already voted, uh, they, the vote's in. Yeah. So, uh, uh, there's a lot of discussion about whether President Trump is pushing the announcement of a COVID-19 vaccine before election day. Uh, the manufacturers are all saying that they are not going to announce it until they're sure. Uh, but if an announcement is made about a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, would that benefit Trump? Or at this point in time, to uh, people just think that's going to happen one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would hurt him, but I'm not sure if it would particularly help him. I think there's a sense that, um, you know, it's it really is the the drug companies and the researchers uh that are doing this um and you know the obviously there are people aren't going to be really getting it before election day even if it you know we get one or two that pass uh, are formally officially fda approved um if the coronavirus is going to be uh we're turning this around and it, you know, the figures, the, 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 the data are getting better. They're certainly getting better here in early September. 
that's going to be a, a result of individual members of the public acting in a particular way and you know the use of testing and treatment at the moment um it's not going to be because of any vaccine that's going to have important material effects down the line so my sense is it's just not going to have it's not going to be an october surprise it might be an october surprise that surprises on the pleasant side but i don't think it's going to have a material effect on the on the outcome of the election yeah, I've got about 30 seconds for a, a deep answer. So you're going to have to condense this. Uh, do you see any change in the economy that would affect the election between now and the, and the election date? Not, not the macro economy. Um, it's steadily improving. It won't improve enough to make. But, of course, headlines can sometimes matter. So the, 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 the stock market has been behaving very erratically. Um, and that could help at the margins by going up a lot or going down a lot, even though it doesn't really affect the macro economy that much, at least in the short term. Well, you've given me just enough time to thank you very much for your observations and to remind people that if they happen to be listening to a station that carries only a half hour version of this program, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear two segments that you missed. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. And uh, if you'd like to share the entire broadcast or listen to the entire broadcast again, you can also go to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong. And again, we thank Andy Taylor for being with us. And Jason has promised me faithfully that we'll have another equally interesting guest again next week on the same group of stations. So until next week, all along the state of North Carolina, we hope that you'll have a good week and that uh, we'll look forward to having you with us next week. So until next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.